Hello and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I am David Kern and this being Close Reads, I am joined by Angelina Stanford, Tim McIntosh and our special guest <laughs> Heidi White. Angelina, Tim, Heidi, how goes it? Great. Go. Excellent. That was a mouthful of names. I was, I was impressed. With how you, I was like, how's he going to do that? How's he going to do this initial <laughs> greeting? That was a lot. Thank God we had like Heidi White. That's a small name. Tim mm-hmm. McIntosh, that's pretty small. I got a lot of syllables. I apologize. Are you are you under the impression that I speak English poorly or <laughs> that would be true and the expectations then would should be should be uh, doled out accordingly? Um, no, no, I feel like that's a breathing issue more than a speaking issue, right? Like getting enough breath in there to say all those names. Yeah, I guess I didn't need to say all your last names, did I? Uh, so I so we're good. Everything's good. Anybody? Yeah. Great. Yes, so great. You Anybody know, I'm ha- good in that. I just boxed 18 rounds with Wendell Berry. Good way, but yeah, I'm good. <laughs> Aren't we all supposed to say fine? Isn't that the right answer? I took fine. issue with that. I yeah. took issue with that whole thing. As you know, Heidi, if someone asks me how you're doing, they're not going to hear fine. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it's part of the role of the community to hold me up while I fall apart. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Tim. <laughs> What is what do you believe the role of the community is in relation to you? Oh gosh. <laughs> <laughs> he gets all the hard questions. I mean Angelina didn't know it's her like, answer. Well, I don't her, her oh, tongue man. I spent a morning talking about Ayn Rand and like kind of like hyper individualism with So my you're friends. like what community? <laughs> Death to the community. <laughs> <laughs> well, I honestly, uh, now we're going to go down a rabbit hole, but like the community's responsibility for me, I know Angelina was like joking, teasing sort of a little bit ago, but um, I don't know. Like thinking about community's responsibility to me, I think that's not the way I try to think about things. My responsibility to it, I think, is a little bit kind of where I start. And where that responsibility ends also. But like, you didn't really ask me that question to get into a philosophical conversation about it. You were probably <laughs> trying to be polite. I should have just said fine. fine. <laughs> you brought it full circle back to the book. Bravo. I will say, I will say that that is an interesting conversation that we can have in the context of mm-hmm. a Wendell Berry novel. That would what be is, a fun one to talk about today. As a matter between of fact. the the purpose, um, and I didn't. That wasn't my intention. But Heidi, um, anything mm-hmm. new with you? I won't ask you that specific question. Um, <laughs> but nope, nothing. Nothing is new with me. My brother and my sister in law and their kids are in town for a week, and we've just been out on the land, enjoying it, being nice. being a membership. So. <laughs> um. One of the things that came up in the last last week's conversation was your um, your comment, Heidi, about how um, reading this book for the first time, you know, years ago when your daughter was young, uh, how that sort of caused you to make certain life decisions. And a couple of people brought that up on the Facebook page, on the Close Reads mm-hmm. Facebook group. And for those people who are not listening that are not a member of that Facebook group, you can go to facebook.com and search Close Reads Podcast Discussion Group in the little groups search bar and you can find it and join the conversation there. And um, <clears throat> so a couple people asked that in various threads and you said, maybe I'll talk more about that later. And I thought that would be an interesting place to start this week um, because 
Well, I'll, I'll tie it in later. So I'm not, I want to kind of give you a chance to explain that a little bit since we got some questions. Sure. So you made some decisions, life decisions, uh, based on or following your initial reading of Hannah Coulter. So talk about that. We did. Yes. As a family, we were at the time building my husband's company. He's an entrepreneur, a business owner. Uh, he owns uh, two companies here in Colorado Springs, one of them for a day job, one of them on the side. And so we found ourselves in the position of a young family uh, in the modern world, somewhat like Maddie Coulter. And we recognized that we might get lost in that along the way. Uh, the ambition, the disconnection, uh, the search for meaning beyond uh, what was just right and readily available to us and what is rich and good. And so we lived in the suburbs at the time. I read Hannah Coulter, my husband and I discussed it and we put our house up for sale. We sold our house and we moved out. We bought six acres in the Colorado Springs country. Uh, we learned how to garden. We brought our kids out there. I decided to homeschool. We bought chickens uh, and we didn't you know, we don't farm for a living by any means. We don't live off our land, but we live there uh, so that we can somehow bring our children up in a form of the membership and in that lifestyle of connection and community with place while also still building something of our own. We really wanted both. Uh, so we didn't give one up for the other, but we have tried intentionally to cultivate a lifestyle um, similar to the cultures while still building something in the world now in this time and place. Hmm. So those were I, the decisions we made. I think that that is going to tie into our discussion today um, nicely because we, we're, we made a slight adjustment. Um, we're not going to discuss all of part two today. So what we're going to do is go through chapter 15, which is page 120. Um, so it's mm -hmm. about the same number of pages as we did uh, in the first episode. And then the last episode will be about the same. So because part three is quite short and part two is quite long. And I mm -hmm. and part, chapter 15 ends when uh, Maggie, um, the daughter, goes off to Louisville to be a teacher and she gets married and all that. And it seemed like a good stopping point because then we can read the rest of chapter two within the context of the whole story. And I think that's going to be really valuable. So anybody who read along, I apologize for the late notice on that. If you read all of part two already, then um, bravo and please accept my apologies that you had to do something so great. Um, and uh, <laughs> so, um, so... That was a sorry, not sorry, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, David, does that mean that we're going to extend the number of weeks that we... No, we'll, we'll still okay. do three. I just think that that third one, because part three is quite short relative to the other, mm -hmm. to part two. And I Got think the final chapters of part two, for the context, the context of the whole book, I think will be really valuable when we're discussing those final chapters. So I think when, Mag, when Maggie leaves is, is a good stopping point. Um, yeah. And one of the things that this section, this chapter, or, or these chapters, chapter eight through 15 of part two, um, one of the things that they're getting at is the way Hannah and Nathan create um, their own membership mm -hmm. to use the word that mm -hmm. you, you kind of borrowed from Barry there and how they then, how their smaller membership participates in the larger membership. Um, mm, and yeah. then what you have at the end of chapter 15 is um, Hannah sort of contemplating, I guess you could say the dissolution of that membership or at least yes. the way that the membership is changing. Um, and so 
Tim, this is kind of a personal, I guess, a personal question. Yeah. And I'll, I'll ask each of you this a little bit. Um, when it comes, what, when you think of that term membership, when it, when, when you read that, what is your impression of, of Barry and Hannah Coulter's use of that word? Um, and kind of what did it mean to you, uh, when you first heard it? I, I guess this is my, my, my classic first impressions question. Um, and it's, do you mean after I finished the chapter on membership or do you mean just the, the no, first I'm more time interested. I came that word? Yeah, I'm more interested in not the first time you ever came across the word, like not the first yeah. time you ever got a membership yeah. to Netflix, but the uh, <laughs> but when you are a library card, but that when you first ran across it in in the Barry book, did it surprise you? Did it um, did it feel right? Oh, what, how did it? How did that kind of strike you? Well, it it I loved it. It was kind of rehabbing this word that just mm. for me the word membership just kind of has taken on a bureaucratic belonging. The word means something like a bureaucratic belonging. Netflix or your public library card are great examples, yeah, but yeah, yeah. their membership, I mean, very first glance at their membership, it was almost the antithesis of that. It was just belonging and contributing to. Um, you mean the, yeah. the membership, the, 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 the Wendell Berry based yeah. membership? Right. As opposed to the membership that is Netflix, where you just pay a small amount of money and you get a bunch of stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Or the contribution that you money. make to to Netflix, the contribution that you make to Netflix, and the contribution that you would have to make to their membership within Port William, the contributions are completely different, aren't they? There are such mm. different contributions. Like the latter, you have to you have to give yourself. You have to give your labor. You have to give yourself and um. I like that you used, given that what you're saying, I like that you used the word rehab, the rehabilitation of the mm-hmm. word. The Barry's mm-hmm. going after something much deeper and richer than, you know, Netflix is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Angelina. Yeah, and I think he uses yeah. membership instead of community because, and this speaks to what Tim is saying, I think he's really focusing on the voluntary aspect of it, right? Like you, you opt you in. Choose to- in this yes and you can also choose to leave which community doesn't necessarily have that same connotation right that's more like when you tell your kids this is the family you're born in suck it up you know (laughs) you wouldn't choose this brother but he's the one you've got you know that's not voluntary um so that's what struck me so what what struck me um when especially in the passage where he contrasts the membership with the organization which i think is in this section that we read Mm. um it brought me back to a discussion we had during Brideshead Revisited when I talked about feudalism and how the basis of feudalism was relationship and a shared relationship and everybody is contributing to the life of the feudal manor in different roles, but every, those roles are pretty clearly defined. And so you have comfort in that everyone's taking care of each other. And then I contrasted that to we gave that up and now the relationships we have are based in business. And what you have lost there, though, is that the business owner does not feel any sense of responsibility to the workers. It's strictly an economic trait. And I thought that that was the same point that ben Wendell Berry was making, that you leave the membership and you enter the organization, but the organization doesn't care about you, right? They just they just use you and spit you out. Um, so I thought that fit in with the things we've talked about in other books. And I, re- I really appreciated that distinction. Hmm. Heidi, you you... Or you use the word membership. So that seems mm-hmm. to be something that was really meaningful to you. Do you remember when you first came across that word in here? Or, or, I mean, was that, was the, uh, was the concept of membership, which you were sort of going after, or is it more like you read the book and there were these sort of, there's this sort of um, perspective or 
or um, way of looking at the world that you were after, and then later on you were able to give it the name membership? Sure. I think for for our family, for me, coming across it in this book frames it in the context of what we have lost as a society, which I think Barry, more than any living writer, does that so beautifully that he he is talking about a particular family. We talked about this last week, right? The, the particular and the general that he's talking about the particular culture family and the other families in Port William, this particular town. But beyond that, there's also this encircling uh, loss of a generation and a lifestyle that happened at this time in our history. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. in fact, there's even a line in here uh, in which she she comments that the war changed everything, that the children mm-hmm. are asking for stories of their parents' childhood. Tell us stories about when you were a child here in Shag, is it Shagbark and, mm-hmm. um, and Port William. And the next line is something along the lines of, yes, before the war is different than after the war, that this is a transitional generation mm-hmm. in which something is being lost. And part of that is to Angelina's point, the voluntary contribution that's not just utilitarian and economic, uh, but here's a line on page 93. It says, every account was paid in full by the understanding that when we were needed, we would go. And when we had need, the others or enough of them would come. Hmm. And that was so appealing to me I had never, as Tim pointed out, I'd never thought of membership as being relational, but more transactional. And I want that word, I wanted that word redeemed. I love that Hannah Coulter does that for us in this time and place. That was one of my favorite passages that you, mm-hmm. that you read because, um, you know, the running joke amongst all of us is that I am the least business-minded person that you will ever meet in your life. And, mm-hmm. and so this section deeply spoke to me because I do not think in terms of accounts and things owed and, and debts or transactions or anything like that. I, and you, I mean, Heidi knows this very well. I think primarily in terms mm. of loyalty, right? And the, so it's not that, oh, so, so-and-so did something for me. And so now I owe them this thing. It's that this person loves me. <laughs> and so I'm going to love them back when they, when they need that from me. So I always think in terms of loyalty. Uh, so I, I loved that passage. I loved mm-hmm. the idea that that the basis of the membership was loyalty out of love and not you owe me this and I owe you that. It's not, it's not a debt, right? And reco- not in that sense. It's the debt mm-hmm. of love rather than an economic debt. Um, and, and there's something so beautiful and pure about that. I've lived with people who are very transactional, who have the giant scales and the ledger book a foremost constantly in their mind and will remind you of what you have paid and what you have owed in terms of uh, whatever they think your duty is. And it is just, that's a miserable way to live. And it also, I think, makes you look for loopholes and what's the minimum way I can repay that debt, right? Mm. Like, okay, fine. You drove me to the movies. Now I'll take the trash out, but only once this week. Cause it's only worth one. Right. And that's, I remember when my kids were little, so much talking to them about what it meant to be in a family. We did not, I did not do chore lists and I did not do, um, you know, um, allowances. I didn't want them to think about it like that. I wanted, I wanted them to think about us as like, we're one team. This family's a team and everybody's going to pull together for the team in whatever way we can. And, always be thinking about, you know, the group and how we can all 
like being on a sports team. I mean, you know, you guys have played sports. You know how it is. It's got to be the team, right? You got to pull in the same direction. Hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And have- you got to be, the, and somebody is the score maker, right? Somebody's a score and somebody's the guy who does the assists. And I've always had a thing for the guys who do the assists, just <laughs> so we know. I, I like those behind the scenes guys. There's but a- everybody's got a role and it's all important. There's a there's a book from the 60s called um, Instant Replay, and it's one of the most famous sports books of all time. It was written by Jay Kramer, and it's about the um, the 1960s Vince Lombardi Packers, and they were known for their offensive line in particular, and they were known for the way that they would. Um, they, like, there's a number of like the the the, the Lombardi sweep, the Packer sweep was this famous play that's still very famous today. People still run it. <clears throat> this was a different era of football, but the idea was they all had to be moving in like these five offensive linemen who are, you know, the offensive linemen are the guys who have the reputation for like, you know, there's a reason why some people call them the big uglies, right? They just kind of do the dirty work. <laughs> what they're doing is actually something very graceful because they're working in tandem and the one false step or one person goes the wrong way and it doesn't work. And the entire, all the other six guys, you know, their work is for naught. And this book goes into the life, this one year with them. It's, it's actually written by one of the guys a couple of years later. And um, it, it gets into this life. And, and that's one of the things that really struck me. And as I, one of the reasons I love this mm. book is because it doesn't feel like a traditional sports book. It feels like so many mm. of these ideas, I mean, it's not highbrow literature or anything, but so many of these ideas are the same ideas that Barry's talking about. Because it, it huh. feels to me like these sections, these chapters, and largely this book in particular, is about how people carve a place into a membership how they're welcomed yes. into that and, and what their roles are within that membership. Um, mm-hmm. Even Hannah is constantly, that's one of the things she's constantly navigating because for so much yes. of her life, she was going in and out of various kinds of memberships. And mm-hmm. so when you're going in and out of memberships, how do you identify what your role is within each one? Um, right. Because mm-hmm. they're, they're often going to be quite different from each other. Like the role you have in one membership is going to be different than the role you have in another one. Yeah, um, that's true. And that's, there's a, there's a, um, that can be, both distracting and disorienting, I think. Right. Tim, you and then, go ahead, go ahead. Then I got to ask. Well, him and, a question. And, yeah. And so, I mean, I think that as we've shifted as a culture and what does it mean to produce, what does it mm. mean to contribute? Right. To use a sports metaphor, right. Everybody thinks they have to be the scorer. Um, but, but there are those people in life and you see them in sports. This is my favorite kind of sports player is the guy who's not the showboat, but he makes everyone else play better. Right. You know what I'm talking about that. He's just his presence just lifts everyone else. And he's not going to be the guy that everyone's going to notice because he's not the guy doing the thing, but he is the guy making everybody else do the thing. And that is what, that's how Barry described Burley Coulter, which I just loved, right? Like in one sense, he looks like the slacker who's not doing anything, but in this other way, his presence just makes everybody else be able to, to do more. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just love that idea that um, contributing to the membership is it's also like being the body of Christ, right? Everybody's got this different role. And not, and, and we don't have to argue about what role is, is better. I mean, you know, if you want to get all mm-hmm. Marx, I mean, it's honest, it's the answer to Marxism, right? Cause Marxism says the boss is, you know, unfairly being given this advantage over the work. And so basically they're fighting over which part of the body is the most important. Right. And mm-hmm. the membership just takes that question right out of it. It's all important. We're all together in this body. Hmm. Uh, hey, I have a question. Yeah, go ahead. For Heidi. Mm, yes. Heidi, when you guys were thinking about m- moving, kind of mm-hmm. like when you had this sort of like maybe a nascent vision of membership for yourselves and for your kids, mm-hmm. did you think we couldn't, we can't do this 
-hmm. the suburbs. We can't do this in the city. And, and I (laughs) anticipating your answer. Why not? (laughs) Sure. Well, to be honest, I don't think, I I do think you can do this in the city and in the suburbs. Uh, I, I loved the idea of being connected with the land as well. And I, I think that's a different yeah, line that, that, of I agree with that. Yeah. thought, yes, than, than membership. I think membership can be anything. Uh, in, in Hannah Coulter, it's shared work and meaningful work, right? If you're going into community just for the sake of community, it's going to fail. That's why. Right. So mm-hmm. that's just like, let's, let's all go live over here and be friends, guys. Like that's, that never works. Uh, the, the, the membership is formed not because of existing relationships, but because of meaningful work between families that have to get something done. And then there's also, uh, the, the idea of the feasting and that that's how he ends. That's how Wendell Berry ends the uh, chapter on membership is with Burley Coulter playing the Mm -hmm. fiddle and the family gathered round and them enjoying leisure together. And Mm -hmm. that it's just this delightful, fun evening. Uh, and I, I think he ends that on a feast very intentionally, uh, but it also follows a long exposition of meaningful work, creating the membership. But I don't think you you need to live in the country to have that. I I, I was I just wanted land after reading this book. I, I I had never ever thought about owning land and how that would be a satisfying experience. Never in my life I was. 31 years old, the first time it ever occurred to me that maybe the suburbs isn't what I, where I want to live or the only place to live. So I'm going to ask a question now as a follow-up mm-hmm. to this. It's going to, it's going yeah. to change our direction a little bit. This is for all three of us and uh, or all four of us, I guess. And I'm going to have to figure out exactly as I go here, I'm going to figure out exactly what direction to take this. Hmm. Um, and this is going to open up a can of worms. I'm just going to Set that out in front of you. David, we um, we'll have to go fishing. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, we'll have to go find. We'll have to just go up and down all the all the watering holes, right? And mom can stay back and have have a nap on, a, on the picnic blanket. <laughs> um, so, one of the you're talking you, this conversation about land and membership, I think, is interesting mm-hmm. because I think this gets to the heart of some of the con, much of the conversation um, about Wendell Berry beyond Mm. just this book or beyond our Facebook group um, or beyond the four of us. Because, you know, one of the topics of conversation that came up on the Facebook group was um, the idea of, uh, I guess, Barry is, um, and one of the accusations that people level against him is that he is too romantic about Mm -hmm. the country, living in the country, living Mm -hmm. on the farms, you know, doing that kind of thing. And, you know, that's, some people feel, like he is being unfair to people who leave. So here's my question. Um, we haven't read the last part of the book yet. I don't want to get into what he says there. So this is going to kind of preview future conversation as well as be a conversation here. But do you agree that Wendell Berry is being unfair or unjust to people who leave? And do you believe that he is arguing that there is something inherently better, that his primary preoccupation is with um the is with convincing people that it is better to live in rural farmland areas than it is to live in the cities of the suburbs <clears throat> um do 
Heidi, do you want to take a, take a crack at that first? Um, sure. Because you seem to have thought about that and because no one else started talking right away. <laughs> I was waiting for you to call on a person. And also I thought it was probably Tim's turn to talk. He's been quiet for a while. See, I can be nice sometimes. Well, okay. Heidi, you start this and then we'll, sure. we'll jump on it because I, because you thought about it, I think you can offer some context. And then um, we'll, sure, we'll sure. I'm, I'm happy we'll, to take this on. We'll respond to you. All right. Uh, I, yes, to both of those questions, but... I would frame that in a way in which I, I, I don't cast any negative judgment on him for that. So, uh, is, can Wendell Berry be unfair, unjust to people who leave? Uh, yeah, I, I think that in this, this time, particularly in reading it, and like you said, we won't get too much. I, I saw more of that the second time when my kids are at a middle age, um, I mean, they're not in middle age, but middle kids. Do you know what I mean? I have an uh, almost 12 year old and a nine year old. Middle aged children. So, I have middle aged kids. Yes. I'm <laughs> in yes. white over here. Right? Yes. <laughs> middle kids. Um, so, and seeing them as people who make choices, not just people that I'm putting, that, that I'm, I'm counting on an outcome for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Yes, I do think that he can be unfair, unjust to people who leave. Absolutely. There are reasons. In what, in what way? Uh, because, well, I, I think that in order to answer that, I have to answer the second part of the question, which is, is his mission primarily to convince people to live on land? I mean, he's very straightforward about that. He's mourning a loss in our culture. He is watching um, a, a crumbling agrarian culture. Mm-hmm. And it's close to his heart and he wants to be a part of saving it. I relate to that. I want to be a part of saving culture too. And this mm-hmm. is his little corner of culture that mm-hmm. he is uh, trying to protect and to preserve. He is a guardian of this way of life. And so being a guardian of that way of life then uh, predisposes him to cast judgment on those who leave this way of life. Um, and I've never spoken to Wendell Berry. You have. So, uh, I have no idea what, if he would say there are valid reasons to do other things in life, but I also think I can, I can read Wendell Berry and mourn along with him and then figure out as a young person who was born into modernity in a way that I don't have the same context of mourning that he has and join with him in that and yet still choose for myself. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So and that's Galena, my answer. Do you, do you, do you buy the idea that he's being, and I don't mean by like, I don't mean the people who are saying this are full of nonsense or whatever. Sure. But do you, do you agree with the concept Angelina that, um, that he's being accusatory? Towards people like okay, is- so I have super complicated feelings about this, and mm-hmm. and one of the and so I the first you have time complicated I read, feelings about I a know. complicated subject. <laughs> I know I can have complicated feelings about what color M M&M and M to put in my mouth. So yes, clearly uh, this is <laughs> stretching me. Um, that's got to be a show for some. That's gonna be a topic of conversation <laughs> for some time. <laughs> um, I'm having a different experience reading the book this time mm-hmm. than the first time. Same thing with, with Jaber Crow. I'm actually finding him more charitable on this second read. And this could just be where I am. I mean, I think Wendell Berry is one of these authors who 
pushes on our bruises. And so uh, we have to filter through our own emotions, I think, to figure out what it is that he's actually saying. So the first time I read these books, I was just filled with the deepest shame. Mm. Um, I don't know that I'm ready to say he accused me of anything, but he definitely showed me something that I felt ashamed of. So just as a little bit of a background, the timelines all match up with my family. My grandparents are Hannah and Nathan's age. Um, they got married right before World War II broke out. My parents um, are the ages of, of those children. And and then the grandkids are all the ages of of the, of, um, of the grandkids in this book. My, I, I come from a line of rural farmers going all the way back to Adam. My father was the first person in the history of our family to go to college and graduate. Um, I was the first grandchild to go to college. You know, after that, everyone, I mean, we've got so many PhDs, it's ridiculous now, right? And no one is in that rural life anymore. And I grew up to despise it. My father taught me to despise it. And I grew up to despise it. It was definitely something that he thought he needed to be free of. Because it was sort of like lowbrow and... Very lowbrow. Yeah, yeah. Very lowbrow. Anti-intellectual um, and, and so forth. And, well, very, well, and it, and it is. And so this is my, my conflict, right? So I read Jay Cronin, mm -hmm. I sob and sob about the loss of that rural life. But at the same time, mm -hmm. so no, I don't fit in that world. Okay. So my, the, the, they're all French speakers. It's the Cajun culture, which is oral culture. Nothing is written. Okay. So like I have all this shame and loss and longing because I left that life. Or that it, that life it was chosen for me to live that life right but at the same time i'm hyper aware of what was given to me in exchange a literary life which i would have never had in an oral culture french-speaking culture i would have mm -hmm. never read a work of literature in my entire life um so i would not be who i am if my father had not made the decision to leave that world mm -hmm. so i mean this goes to like heart core identity issues in me. And so I think where I'm coming down on it now is, is I feel like I'm taking that this is my position now that Barry is just showing us that everything's a trade-off. And if you mm. make one choice, you are losing another choice and that we need to be aware of them and not just be swept up in the current of modernity, right? And, and I actually mm -hmm. agree, and I don't know what chapter, so if, if I went past what, yeah. what, what we're supposed to talk about, um, but I agree mm -hmm. with what he says about how modern education trains you to leave home. Mm -hmm. That is true. That is yes. totally true at the same time that I have devoted my life to education, right? Um, but I understand that he's right, that deep within this American idea of making it means leaving your hometown and that we should question that. I, I, I completely agree with him that we should question that. In some of his essays, he talks about how uh, one of the consequences of standardized education is that really it's an education for nowhere. And mm -hmm. so you have not educated your children to to be in this community and for the needs of this particular community. And so then they don't feel an attachment and they can just go anywhere and they do go anywhere. Um, but so, no, I, I don't necessarily think Wendell Berry is saying you are a horrible person if you leave home, because look, I mean, somebody's a, somebody's got the gift of being a, you know, a rocket scientist and he probably needs to go work for NASA. Right. Cause some people just have a gift, but not everybody is going to be well served by the basic assumption that your life, if you're going to succeed, means you have to leave home, right? The vast majority of people are not going to be well served by that. So that's just some of my very complicated feelings about my own identity when it comes to this, that I am aware that there has been a loss, but I also know that there has been a gain. I mean, at this point, I think I'm just a philosophical agrarian. Uh, I, I played, after I read Jay Burko the first time, all I wanted to do was live on a farm. I have come to my senses about that. <laughs> 
<laughs> I do not want to live on a farm. And I'm glad that some people want to do that. And I will give all of my money to my local farmer, you know, and I'm and in for the what CSA. It's worth, I'll do all of it. Wendell Berry would and does encourage almost nobody to live on a farm. Hmm. His mission, and when people, he has said many a time, people come to him often with, you know, saying, I want to start a farm. What do I do? And then he'll give them all these instructions. And he says, but you probably are not, you probably are not someone who should do that. Um, <laughs> that's his, his mission is not to convince people to be farmers. I don't, I don't believe Tim, where do you come down on all this? As Angelina mentioned a minute ago, you've, you've been quiet for a little bit. So um, I, I feel, you feel like accused. Angelina. Yeah, I do a little bit. I do a little bit. And I, I've thought a lot about, I mean, I think on the, on the opening show, I talked about, about the first time I read Wendell Berry, I was reading his essays while reading Starbucks and I had this plastic throwaway cup <laughs> in my hand looking at all these beautiful, you know, cities in Buckhead in Atlanta. And I felt guilty because I was just, I just felt like I was part of this plastic disposable culture, which hmm. I, I had never really bought into, but I was still participating in. Um, and so when I read Hannah Coulter, um, yeah, I do feel guilty. And I thought, man, I thought so much about why I feel guilty. And I think here's part of it. Part of it is that his vision of the world is extremely expansive. It's very, very broad. Sure. It's only about Port William. So we're only looking through the kind of the keyhole of Port William, but that vision of the world is very, very broad it's very cogent. It's very compelling. And I have found that whenever I, but I, and I'm not living that life. I'm not, I don't buy into that world in some way. I value that world as not just a thing of the past, but as a wonderful thing that has been lost. But I found myself at night after reading Hannah Coulter, kind of arguing a little bit with Wendell Berry and I wonder if part of the reason that I'm arguing with him is because his, the vision that he puts forth is so powerful. Hmm. And, and I feel because of its power that I ought to belong to it because I find myself arguing with um, people that I really respect, but in some way don't fully agree with. I find myself, I don't know if you guys do this, arguing with them at night before I go to sleep, kind of like, <laughs> <laughs> kind of like rehearsing the things that I would say to them and trying to find weaknesses in their arguments. And really what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to kind of like bolster my own kind of understanding of the world. Right. It, it makes me think about um, Milton Friedman, the economist, they would say mm -hmm. many a person has won um, arguments with Milton Friedman and they were all when he was out of the room. I kind of feel that way with Wendell Berry, you know, I don't like, even argue I, with Wendell Berry when he's not there just to be clear, but <laughs> okay, let me, um, let... well, okay. So I just want to say this before we go on to whatever the next thing is like he, I think that it's not really so... a mixed thing. It's just a, okay. It's just right, an so, around the corner thing. All right. So here's a, here's another around the corner. Um, I think that Wendell Berry is so good at showing us, helping us to explain some of the longings we have and some of our, mm -hmm. you know, fragmented modern pain that we suffer from. I don't think he's necessarily telling us the answer is we have to go back and move into a small town because the truth, I mean, he makes the point in Jay Crow about exactly when that happens, right? The people who were not from the small town, move to the small town, try to recreate the small town. And he makes the point in Jay Crow that that doesn't work. 
right? right? So I don't think he's saying, let's all abandon the city and go back to the small town. But I think he does identify the, the angst that we have as moderns. And I think when you go on the close reads page, you're, you're, you're right in front of that, right? How many people on there are saying, I felt so alone where I am. I'm so glad to have found yeah. this community and these other people. And they all make jokes about, you know, when can we see each other in person? Let's have a meetup. Let's move together. Let's go buy property and move together. So, I mean, there he's identifying a real need and longing. Like, I think we all wish we could live right next to each other in one neighborhood and, you know, you know, walk yeah. over and be like, have, let's have a cup of coffee and talk about what you're reading. Like, we would love that. Mm-hmm. So okay. he's right to identify that human need we have. Yeah, so this is related to what I was going to, kind of where I wanted to turn the conversation because there's a lot of things that we could look at as far as things that I'm going to wait until next episode to talk about. But <laughs> let's look at the stuff that we just read because what is it? We end this section with Margaret, with Maggie leaving, getting married, leaving, going to Louisville, which is just an hour away from, from where Port William, where Port, yeah, Port William is supposed to be. Um, and so at this point, then we're going to be, he's going to be kind of shifting his gaze towards the people who are leaving and what that means and all that kind of stuff. So Throughout the rest of part two, he's been exploring the kind of the existence and the life of the membership that they're leaving from, or from which the, from which they are leaving would be the more appropriate way. Of putting that. <laughs> so, what is it? My my question is, what is it that he is pre- offering to us as a vision that is worth staying in? Like, what are the mm. principles in chapters eight yes. through fifteen that Barry is offering? That's a great question. That are great worth question. holding on to, because I think what that'll lead us into is. Is, the, is a discussion of whether or not those principles are a- applicable only within the context that he is offering in that way of life or whether they are uh-huh. applicable anywhere. So yeah, nice I, I, I'm going to ask I would like hard. each of you to kind of, let's, we can think about this for a second. I'm going to keep talking here for a second to give you a chance to think. But if you can each kind of come up with one principle, and my only rule is you can't say the one that was said before you. So whoever goes first <laughs> gets to have the better option as I continue to ramble on here. And you have to think with my voice in your ear. Um, so a principle that he is setting forth as, um, as a valuable um, core tenant of this membership. That, is, that, is, that, that she is kind of going to be um, sad. That the, it's not just that the people are going to be gone. Because she says, she constantly says, I'm grateful for the relationships that I had. People pass away. Mm-hmm. People, people die. And that, that's... That is not the thing that she is most sad about. She obviously mourns, but she is on a deeper level mourning certain truths, realities, principles, however you want to put it, that are at the core of this membership that will also be passing away as the membership kind of dissolves. So I've rambled for a minute. Tim, I'm going to turn to you first. What is a... I just did that randomly. What is a... Was being first not good? Um, What is a principle or, or... Whatever word you want to use that is at the core of this that that is valued, that you think Barry is trying to tell us is valuable. The first word that sprang to mind was fidelity, but that was a little bit of a cheat because I know that he has a book named (laughs) Fidelity. You just happened to be looking on your bookshelves and you thought, Fidelity. Yeah, right, right. (laughs) Um, So let me, I'm not going to say that. That'd That'd be too easy, I think. I want to say something like... Um, this is some expert, 
like thinking on your feet, like saying a bunch Boy, of nonsense to give yourself a chance to say something meaningful. Exactly. <laughs> Step one, repeat the teacher's question. Yeah, 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 yeah. An say what you're not going to say to think of something to say. Go ahead. I'm just, we're just teasing. Go ahead. This is hard. I, I want to, I keep, I'm searching for a word that's sort of like genuineness or authenticity. Okay. I have an answer if Tim wants to stumble well, around. Hold on, hold on. Um, <laughs> but even in those words, those words have kind of been, we use them now as sort of a, to search for something that we don't have. We don't mm-hmm. have authentic relationships. We don't drink authentic, real milk straight from the cow, you know? everything in our life in some way has been manufactured and gone through the hands of thousands of thousands of hands. So I, I, I'm reluctant to use those words, but there's something about his vision of the world. It is so closely tied to kind of the rudiments of human existence, you know, that we get our plants from the ground and we wash them and we prepare them. And then they're on our plates and we take the eggs from the, hen house and we crack them and we cook them and they're on our plates and it seems like there's something about the relationships in the book that also the relationships in the books are not built on facades there there's less talk in those relations so the rudiments of human existence i think is a is a is a yeah phrase that i actually really like so um and i might even say rudimentary if we can steer away from that meaning you know which is kind of like rudimentary yeah, sim- not, you know i mean overly simplistic yeah yeah something tangible less something is that kind of where you're getting at like the 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 tangible physical manifestation yeah of the, yeah, of yeah, the yeah. way of our lives of how life right. how life is lived um yeah uh, and i actually that's an interesting way of thinking about the idea of mm-hmm. auth- authenticity angelina go mm-hmm. ahead Okay, so when I read Jaber Crow, I had the experience that you guys are mostly talking about, thinking about the world that's passing away and rural life versus urban life. Both times I've read Hannah Coulter, that is not the thing that particularly stands out to me. And and it will surprise no one, I think, that what I have zeroed in on is the love story and what Wendell Berry um, has to say about love. In fact, it's it's a little pet thing of mine to send texts of long Wendell Berry passages explaining what love is to everyone I know (laughs) as I try to figure out what it is myself so the love story is what has stood out to me so how can i connect that with the question well one of the things that really struck me this time about all his long speeches about love is that he keeps connecting love to place Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's not just about hannah and nathan and this love that they have right that love is connected to the place and he keeps he keeps going back to that and i love this one line on page 88 Love in this world doesn't come out of thin air. It is not something thought up. Like ourselves, it grows out of the ground. It has a body mm-hmm. and a place. In other words, love has to be incarnated, right? Mm-hmm. But he's making the point that it is incarnated in the place. And so, I mean, I, I, I can't even begin to think about all the implications of this. But if you're thinking primarily of love and a marital relationship as being just about those two people, right? Then there's this idea that you could uproot it and move it around and it would still be you too, right? Except that doesn't really happen. If the love is somehow connected to the place, then every time you uproot the couple, 
to pursue the, you know, the job transfer or whatever, um, then you are somehow doing something to the love too. And I'm, I mean, I'm reminded of what my sister who has moved around a lot for her husband's work, what she said to me once was, you never realize how deep your roots grow until you uproot yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, yeah, I don't understand exactly how love is connected to place because I'm still trying to figure out what the heck love is. So now you're throwing <laughs> place in there and I'm I, really confused. But <laughs> you are, this is something that, I have a lot to say on this as far as Ooh, this idea. So maybe we'll talk about that at some point, but I want to get Heidi's answer first. So right now we have from Tim, Heidi, these are things you cannot say from Tim. We have the idea of the rudiments of human experience in that time. That's authenticity. And in Angelina from Angelina, we have the idea of the incarnation of love in place or yeah. being rooted in place. I'm, I'm just, these are key, key. This is my key words that I'm noting from what people are saying. Sure. Well, and mine is completely dis distinct but ties into those and that is home with a capital h um this i i've just completed the school year like almost everybody uh listening and here uh on the show and um so we closed i teach literature and i closed the year with the last battle uh the last chronicle of narnia and i keep thinking about the end of the last battle, as I read Hannah Coulter and hear him talk about place and home, uh, at the end of the last battle, if you remember, they pass through the door, uh, which represents death, and they end up in Aslan's country. And Aslan's country, as it turns out, is a redeemed form of Narnia. Uh, it, It is the real, whereas Narnia was the shadow land. And they recognize the place and they revel in the place and they declare, I think it's Jewel the Unicorn who declares, this is what I've been looking for. This is the home I've been longing for all my life. That is what I think Wendell Berry is in some way trying to say when he talks about loving a place. And I'm going to read a passage uh, from page 83. He says, most people now are looking for, quote, a better place, unquote, Mm. which means that a lot of them will end up in a worse one. I think this is what Nathan learned from his time in the army, in the war. He saw a lot of places and then he came home. I think he gave up the idea that there is a better place somewhere else. There is no better place than this, not in this world. And this is the key line. And it is by the place we've got, no matter where it is. I added that part. It is by the place we've got and our love for it and our keeping of it that this world is joined to heaven. Hmm. I think what what Wendell Berry is trying to say to your what excellent question, David, of what is the principle? What if we don't live on a farm? Can we still do this? Yes. Because what Wendell Berry is saying is build a home, invest in a home, love a place. Because in that you'll be prepared to recognize and love the homeland with a capital H, which is the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I love that. Yeah. I don't think that, you know, I, I've never, I, so I'm going to ruffle some feathers here. I'm going to, sure. it's a little insulting. I think if you are reading Wendell Berry or particularly his fiction and you are reading it and you're hearing him say that, and you're hearing and you're hearing him say that the things that he believes in are can only be done on the farm and if you don't go to the mm-hmm. farm then you're doing it wrong then i think you are reading defensively 
Like I think yes. you're mm-hmm. you're you're, try, you're like feeling accused, and so then you're trying to kind of yes. push back. And that's, right. it, it's just a little simplistic. Like I think there's so much more yes. going on here, and I love that. Right. What because the, there's thick. It's no surprise that there's a commonality between the three things that you all said. Mm. So Tim's talking about the idea of like. You all are essentially are talking about place, right? Yes. Yeah. And about mm-hmm. rootedness. So you're, um, Heidi's talking about like making a home wherever it is. Like you, you, you're committed to making it a place that is, that is, I guess for lack of, I mean, he can say it in much better ways, but it's a place that is worth being in and keeping. Yes. Um, and then Angelina's talking about like love being tied to place that the place is the incarnation of love. Um, particularly, you know, it's their home, Hannah's explaining, their home is the incarnation of Nathan and Hannah's love for one another. And it's the place where their love is lived out. Like it's where they love each other, but it's also where their love takes action. Yes, and she also makes this great connection in chapter 14 between that when they're fighting, she loves him most. And and I think that's also the connection of when they're fighting the land, right? Like the effort you put into it, is related to how much joy you get out of it, right? I, I really like that because I, I thought a lot of, when I was reading this time, um, I thought a lot about uh, Nathan as a character and uh, I was going to actually ask about this in a minute, but hmm. um, the way he works the land, and I'm going to put this again simplistically, the way he works the land is the same way he works her. Yes. And I can say that without it being like, no, I mean I that like in a chauvinist. Absolutely I mean, true. The way he I, interacts I with her the is point. the same. Mm-hmm. Right. This is the the place I love. This is the woman I love. This is the responsibility that I have to both of those things. And I think he is absolutely drawing the parallel to it. And and mm-hmm. I want to speak to the quote that Heidi read too, because I, yes, right. We're all feeling guilty that we don't live on a farm. But what he's really saying here is you have to love the place you, that you are. You have yes. to love your home. And I think what what happens is just on a practical level, it's much harder to love your home if you live a suburban lifestyle. And part of that is that no one lives in their suburban house forever, right? We're all getting the next big house. We're all upgrading. We're moving to the new neighborhood. And you, you, you don't, you know, like, okay, so it's the modern <laughs> paradoxical dilemma, right? That we fix up our houses and make them beautiful when we want to sell them. right Right? only when we're abandoning it do we put the love into it that's modernity and that is Mm -hmm. the opposite of the picture we have of what love looks like for hannah and nathan where they're lovingly building this home for future generations and i think that when you live in a place that you presume will be passed down to future generations that's just gonna by necessity change your relationship to it i mean we don't love the future owners of our home we're just trying to get a good price we're trying to dump this thing right so here comes the granite countertops I mean, th- that's just weird if you think about it. Yeah, rootedness. Mm-hmm. A, a big, I think, a big part of what we see. You know, the reason that Hannah can be thankful and grateful at the end of her life, despite what she's been through, is because she's content. Um, not content because everything mm-hmm. went well, but because she's content with oh, gosh, the no. place. And rootedness. Yeah. I, I think rootedness breeds contentment. And when we're not rooted, it's going to be very. When we don't have, we, when we don't have the roots surrounding us and we don't have, well, I'll just put it that way for the sake of time, then, then it's very difficult to be content. And I think that's where that even ties back into what Tim was saying. So again, and uh, Heidi, you're talking about the idea of like home. Um, mm-hmm. And Angelina's talking about the idea of that home, that place being the incarnation of the love of two people and of a, and even we'll, we'll put it more broadly of a community or a membership of some kind 
first it's the relationship of a married couple or of two people. And then that expands out from there. And then Tim's talking about the rudiments of human experience and the rudiments of the human experience is the ways in which that incarnation happens. Like that is the manifestation of that incarnation. Like it's incarnated yeah. through people in some ways, but it's also incarnated through the things that Tim is talking about that, that the rudiments of human experience, which I, I really like that phrase. Um, so I want to take a step back then another step back and let's look even on a, more narrowly and let's look at some of the characters we did this at the very beginning hey david yeah go ahead. i hate to do this no, i want to i want to go in the direction you want to go but no you're good there's one we were all there two years ago i think it was two years ago at the Circe conference there was a kind of a q a maybe it was three years ago you're talking about charleston 2015 I don't think so. I think I think so, Angelina. I don't feel super was, confident um, about it. But was it the city was, city versus yes, rural yes. thing? The panel discussion? Yeah, that was that was Charleston twenty fifteen. That was the closest to me that I'd ever seen like an argument break out among Circe people. And the in the <laughs> I don't think it ever ended up being like a full blown argument or debate, but at stake was sort of was urban life. Rural life and people were getting testy with each other. And I thought so much of that, the kind of like conflict in the room or the unease in the room, kind of like reflected, you know, like the American political hmm. disjuncture, which is not really about between red states, blue states, it's urban versus rural. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason this, like, this, uh. they feel so intractably opposed to each other is because those two different forms of life, whether we like to admit it or not, are kind of formed two different grammars of meaning. Mm. And it's so difficult to, it's, we can talk about the surface meanings of things, but when we get like different grammars of meaning, it's hard to talk about grammar. It's really mm. difficult to talk about grammar. And I think that's kind of what, um, that we all, almost all of us in the United States have got, if, if our families have been here long enough, almost all of us came from a farm. I mean, we just mm-hmm. all worked farms mm-hmm. generations ago. Mm-hmm. And now, a hundred years later, almost all of us live in the suburbs of the city. And mm-hmm. I wonder if that's even somewhere kind of like, um, like just in our bones. Mm-hmm. We can't really go back. Most of us can't go back, but there's just this feeling of loss that we cannot go back. Mm-hmm. But we can't. But um, it, 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 the difference between urban and rural is a, an extremely difficult one to talk about because it's not about surface streets. It's not about pasture land. It's not about cows. It's about something deeper, much deeper than that. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah. It's about I think, grammar. I, mm-hmm. and I, I think, you know, if we were talking about what Barry's kind of goals are and how he wants people to feel, um, whether he's being challenging, I don't think that what he's getting at as a writer of rural places, mm-hmm. you know, and you can lump any number of other writers throughout the, last couple of centuries who had similar or came from similar places. You know, I don't think that some of the, th- I don't think that the, some of the ideas that they're getting at are all that different from some of the great um, novels of novelists who are writing about the cities. 
you know, whether it's like Philip Roth or whoever, like, I think at there's still some core ideas that they share. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the big things is like, what does it mean for a place to be lasting? Um, mm. And, and can it be, la- and, and can it be, and what is our role in making sure that it does last? Um, well, yeah. And I'm, I mean, all of the great modern authors are about feeling alienated in the modern world and fragmented and not belonging. Yeah. I don't think that, um, I don't think that you don't get the sense in Barry's work that just because they live in the farmland, they are like, and they live in the farmland or they live in a small town that they feel constantly great about themselves or they're constantly belonging. Right. <laughs> like that's, people say that he romanticizes it. And I think that he romanticizes it in the extent in the, in the way that someone who loves something will romanticize something like, um, you, you know, you might write about, you might write about your own children in a way or your spouse or whatever, or like your job or something you truly love, um, in a way that's going to come off as a little bit, uh, romantic, you know, romanticized. But if you're telling the true story, it's not, you know, you're still, there's still going to be some things in there that are difficult or problematic. You're going to be honest about it. And I think he's, you don't come away from it feeling like, you know, Burley Coulter or Jaber Crow is constantly just constantly content all the time and feel great about his whole existence. Right. Like it doesn't eliminate the human, the human experience. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but he has an affection for a place and that's his place. And so he, t- that's his context. And so he gets the, the idea, like those ideas in the same way that someone like Philip Roth does in his context, uh, mm-hmm. rest in peace, Philip Roth, by the way, for any Philip Roth lovers out there. Yes. When did he, when did he die? This week. Yesterday, I think. Oh, I did. No kidding. I had no idea. I mean, it's every single day now, right? There's somebody else. Tom, Tom Wolf. Tom Wolf. Yeah. Tom Wolf died. Tim clearly yeah. has not been on social media. Oh my gosh, Tom Wolf died. I, I am that is that really makes me sad. Yeah, both of them were well into their eighties, um, yeah. oh, and man. had a, have a just an expansive body of work. I would not, I'm, you know, I don't know if they're close reads type books, but they're both authors worth at least looking into and exploring a little yeah. bit. Yeah, key voices of the of the uh, last hundred years for sure. Yeah. Wow. Before, we, before we go, let's look at a couple characters. Um, let's look at Nathan okay. in particular, because mm-hmm. I want to think about how um, what what Barry is doing here and what Hannah is doing here and her reflections in in revealing through these characters some of the desirable things you know that are worth that are these they tie into these principles that you guys are talking about here. Um, you know, they, you know they incarnate I, some of these principles. So, what about I, Nathan? Is is um, is worth imitating okay so granted i romanticize things and so i might be the last person to speak about whether or not wendell berry romanticizes things but i don't find his work romantic and sentimental and the reason i don't is because he makes comments undermining the romanticism all the time right so so hannah talks about how it was nathan's quietness that drew me to him his quiet steady stable character she's like also those are the things that made me want to kill him that's that's so true and it's not romantic right and and i feel like that runs through all of his stuff that the best things about wherever they are are also the worst things about what wherever they are so as somebody who is deeply attracted, like quiet, reserved, steady, stable men, because they counteract all my craziness, they also drive me. Literally, this is me and a guy. I just, I just love how quiet you are. Oh my God, if you don't say something, I'm going to kill you. Like that's, I, I, deep, deep, I just wish you had more words, right? So yeah, I totally related to that. So uh, what, in what ways do you, do you, Angelina, I'll start with you. What, in what ways, what is that, what about Nathan? 
I do think Hannah and Wendell Berry are suggesting is worth imitating then. Oh, he's just so steadfast and dependable. And, and I feel like, especially as the counteractive to the chaos of the war, hmm. right? Just this whole, you know, when he, when he pats hand on, on it's going to be all right. We're going to get through this. We're just going to keep on living. You know, like that is, that's the voice that we all need after the war, right? I can hmm. totally see how Hannah would have been deeply drawn to him. He's so dependable, hardworking, faithful, stable. Hmm. Heidi? I mean, he's just, he's just a good, a good man mm-hmm. and he's kind and he's also very intuitive for not having a lot of words. He's very intuitive, right? He sees everything. Nathan doesn't miss a thing. He sees what little Margaret needs. He, and he's sweet with her and wins her over. He sees what Hannah needs. He knows when he has to be cautious with her because she's wounded and he can't push too hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Heidi? Uh, yeah, I I loved on page 109 when she talks about his gentleness. Uh, what I was always reaching toward in him was his gentleness that had been made in him by loss and grief and mm. suffering. A gentleness opposite to the war that he was not going to talk about and never did. The gentleness I knew in him seemed to be calling out and it was a gentleness in me that answered. So we talk about gentleness a lot in my house that the, that gentleness is strength under control. It doesn't mean weakness, but that I love that, that Wendell Berry has Hannah. You stopped too soon, Heidi. Yeah. <laughs> you stopped too soon. Finish the, finish the paragraph. Yeah, yeah. All right. That gentleness calling and answering, giving and taking brought us together. It brought us into the room of love. It made our place clear around us. So that just and ties then, back to the conversation. Yes. We're so, but finish, exactly. Finish, finish yes. Up. So well, can, to, I think that ties what you're saying. Sure. Well, and what Angelina said about love and place, like that's what, when, when Wendell Berry calls it a room of love, they're talking about building a place for their love, incarnating their love. But that idea of gentleness as strength under control goes to what Angelina was talking about earlier about his steadiness. And also then the dark side, which is, that he doesn't talk to her about the war, which I realize this is an ideal man of his generation, which is entirely different from an ideal man two generations later. But You're right. To for oh, yes, my grandfather so, did not talk about the war. Right. So in this, not right. But I, I can't, I can't wrap my head around that. Um, my husband's also an introvert, but for him to go through something and not tell me about it would be wounding to me. But it's very different in well, that okay, generation. So- so I've read a lot about this because I, I watched my grandfather completely be destroyed by what the pain that he was carrying around. And so I've often thought, you know, why didn't they talk about it? They didn't talk about it. You got to get it out. So what I have read about this is that, you know, the, the feeling of the day was that this was another way that these men were protecting the women and children, right? So they just like absorbed the whole war and kept it in them. And so to, to, so they're in the war to protect the people they love and they come home and they're protecting the people they love, even from the stories of the war. Sure. And you can, I think you can see that in Nathan's character. Like that makes a lot of sense, right? That he which would, goes, sure. Which goes again to my point about his gentleness, that he has the strength, but it is a strength under control, which is the definition of gentleness, which is a very um, comforting, consoling 
attractive thing about a man. I, I think that that's oh, really I, lovely. I really am taken by the sentence, it made our place clear around us. Yes, mm. me too. Because if you think mm-hmm. about it in all the different sort of ways that it could be read, there's not a, like all the different metaphors are really meaningful. Mm-hmm. So it made our place clear around us as in it made our place so we, we could see it better, right? Like it made it so that yes. it was... It was, right. it was something that was visible to us. Like you clean a window. Or uncluttered. Or, or right? uncluttered, yeah. yeah. You get rid uh, of all the mess. That's good. And the gent- so it's the gentleness that it makes. So just as they were when they first went into the house and they're mm-hmm. looking at it and there's all the junk mm-hmm. everywhere and there's a bucket on the mantelpiece and all that. And they had to clear it out to create a place to live. So his huh. gentleness, that is a mirror of that metaphor that Barry's offering. Oh, and, that's or good, it's the David. same as like, like looking that. through a glass window and you clean the glass off and you can see through it. So it's also it made it so she could see the place. So the mm-hmm. place could, so so she could see the place more clearly and so people could see into their place more clearly. And then it also made it a place that was worth living in. You know, and that's right. there's, there's an interactive between that interaction between them to create that place. But his role in it, you know, th- it, it, it his gentleness, you know, to borrow the fruit of the spirit idea. Uh-huh. truly produced fruit and the, yes. the place that they lived in and the value of the place they lived in was born at least mm-hmm. his participation in that was his gentleness uh, certainly other things but this is the key thing that barry's presenting as mm-hmm. as a you know helping create that place i love it, it. Uh, and I love manifestation of his love Right. I love, again, the idea that he keeps hitting that their love is more than just their love, right? It's not about them and their affection for one another. It ha- it's bigger than that, right? And it creates this place. And then he goes on to show us the way that the place nurtures other people as well. And it's so different from our whole modern, you know, idea of it's me and you against the world, baby. Like, why is it always y'all against the world? Like, who is trying to stop this love that y'all got to be fighting all the time? It's mm. just crazy. Hmm. That's so opposite, right? It, it's so what? What is it? Is like um, uh, the modern couple is turned inward. They're self-focused. It, it, it exists only for the two people and their mutual benefit, and, and doesn't exist outside of themselves. And so, it really, it's kind of selfish. I mean, the more hmm. isolated the love makes you, the more hellish it is. If you want to get Dante-esque, right? Hmm. So, in this sense, their love is a picture of heaven because the love they have for each other pours out into everywhere. He he talks a lot about how the various kinds of loving, or he creates these images at least of the various kinds of loving, um, being sort of op- opening themselves up to to create memberships and communities. So he he's very specific about, for example, like the marriage bed um, being something that draws two people together and creates one mm-hmm. membership, right? But then he goes on beyond from that. So that, that that's one membership. But then the love of the family. And there, there becomes the membership that the love of the family creates, hmm. and that goes yeah. out further. Hmm. Now that you're saying this, you know, Wendelberry has an essay about the Odyssey, and he actually makes this exact point that we have been saying he, about the marriage bed in the Odyssey, and that it's a tree. And he talks about then how marital love is rooted to place mm-hmm. and home. I, say, I mean, I'm, 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 my head is exploding right now. It's everything he says in that essay about the marriage mm-hmm. bed being a tree in the Odyssey. That is what he is showing us in this book. Hmm. Yep. Hey, Tim. Hey. Oh, you chime in now. We've been talking for a minute. So chime in now, yeah. or, or, or you can respond to what we're saying, or I do have a question for you. So feel free to Let's jump in. Let's do a question, because there's nothing that I would add about Nathan Coulter that they, that um. Did you also Angelina think he was Heidi's dreamy, mouth. Tim? He's dreamy. He's absolutely dreamy. <laughs> okay, so we talked then about Nathan and his gentleness, and that kind of being, you know, if we're talking about 
if we're thinking about the idea of what are some of these principles that are applicable far beyond the farm, let's say. Yeah. And gentleness is clearly one of those. And I don't mean to, yeah. I mean, we're really breaking this book down in a way that I'm not hundred percent comfortable with, but I think it's an interesting conversation. Um, at least to get at what Barry is saying, I wouldn't necessarily read literature like this all the time, but um, you're on the chalkboard writing gentleness. What are some <laughs> other traits about Nathan? Yeah. <laughs> well, but I think in terms of understanding what Barry is saying, I think it can help mm-hmm. us help us give. Oh, him. I agree. I'm just teasing you. Um, I did write it down though, uh, mostly for my own <laughs> sake because I want to think about that later. Um, but um, let's think about Burley Coulter. And I'm really curious oh, about your just, Tim. I'm so glad you brought that up. Yes. I'm curious about Tim's perspective, at least first, on Burley. Um, and what what are what about Burley makes him a valuable member of their membership? Um, and now that I'm thinking about it, Tim, what David? What you kind of remind me of Burley in some ways, <laughs> um, because of wow. your fi- because of your fiddle playing, I mean, because of your fiddle playing. Yeah, yeah, and you're, yeah. You always get into trouble. We can't take our eye off of you at a conference for two seconds. I, but it's just I could see Tim like wandering off into the woods for like two weeks and coming back with like like some weird story to tell, and you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm I'm just teasing you, Tim. But what? So no, that's see. Actually, David, I think it's kind of fair because I was reading, I was reading him, and he's not my favorite character. You know, he's not my favorite character because I think he's a little bit. Um, oh, I'm trying to be generous to him. He he lacks a little bit of kind of responsibility, at least when he's you know earlier in his life. Right, right. And then it, once, um, it talks about how once his sister-in-law dies, he's forced to have responsibility because he has to help Yeah, take right. He doesn't really welcome it, take it on voluntarily, but it's kind of forced upon him and he does it. But no, yeah, I, I was wrestling with him in my mind because I do think I'm a little bit more like him than I would prefer to be. <laughs> and so I guess... I so he's not your really, favorite character because he hits too So he's not my favorite character. <laughs> I, I had a girlfriend tell me, she said, she was reading in a... Uh, Anna Karenina, and she said, you remind me of Levin so much, and I have, like, cherished that compliment because I want to be like him, but I don't really want to. Today when David called you Burley Coulter. <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't hey, want to be need, like Burley Coulter, but we I, all need characters. I probably do have a lot with him. We all need characters that can shine a light on the parts of ourselves that we want to be more like and the parts of ourselves that we uh, need to improve on, right? Yeah, yeah. Burley Coulter's probably like, he's my shadow self, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so what What about him? Do you, I mean, she she spends a lot of time talking about him and, and he's a he's a major character in... And um, uh-huh. in 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 the Barry, the world of Barry, the, this the, mm-hmm. all his all his books. And why do you think that Wendell Barry in particular emphasizes him so much? And why do you think that Hannah loves him as much as she does, and, and many of the people around him him do, despite his being a little rough around the edges, shall we say? Yeah, I think he's he's just fun. He's he breaks up. They do hard work and it's surely monotonous work and. There are many wonderful things about farm life, but oftentimes it's the same thing. The same thing. He has that kind of personality. Oh, you're breaking up a little bit jester. there. Jester. Oh, the jester. I was actually wondering if you. So you're saying um, like a jester? He breaks up the monotony. Yeah, he plays the role of the jester. He he keeps things fun and lively. And when you're 
working tobacco all day, putting it in, you know, putting it in the farm, putting it in the loft. Like you need somebody that can bring some life to the party because it's not always fun. I love that. I, I also have really struggled with this character. Um, and while Tim was talking, I, I, so the weird thing where I'm reading this Madeline Lingle book, Walking on Water, literally this is where my bookmark is. I kid you not. This is literally where I stopped reading to record the show. And this is what it says. One of the holiest women I have ever known did little with her life in terms of worldly success. Her gift was that of bringing laughter with her wherever she went, no matter how dark or grievous the occasion. Wherever she was, holy laughter was present to heal and redeemed. In the Quran, it is written, he deserves paradise who makes his companions laugh. And that makes me think of Burley Coulter, especially the scene when they're mourning the death of their friend and he laughs through the tears. And then everybody kind of has permission to be okay. Yeah, that's a great image. The idea of laughing through through the tears, you know, um, and seems to be something that is, right. So uh, he feels important it. to he Hannah. Feels the grief. Yeah, and I think that's also something that a lot of people understand, right? Like when you grieve the loss of a loved one, um, you know, the memory can often produce a lot of laughter, and those things go hand in hand a lot. You know, so often when you think back. Uh, I think that's probably something that most, almost, almost everybody can identify with to some degree or another. Heidi, your turn. Sure. Burley. Um, yeah. So I am a huge fan of Burley. I like him a lot. Um, I, I think of him as if I was to put him into an archetypal figure, Angelina, you can weigh in on this too. I'd say either the wise, like the wise fool, like the one he's always there. He's uh, he's, he's a memory keeper for their culture. He absolutely knows himself and owns his life. He wants no other life. Uh, he's settled in who he is. He's like an anchor point, mm. but he's fun, which I mm. love that they make him fun. Not like some wise hermit in the woods that everyone goes to, right? <laughs> like he's, he is, um, he's, he's a storyteller. He's always telling people back who they are. That's mm -hmm. what I love about Burley. That's um, a good point. Yes, he, I mean, that's what he does with Matty, right? He tells them, you're not giving out, you're giving up. Mm -hmm. And they receive it because it's, it's wisdom. It's telling them back who they are, not just putting judgment on Matty, but telling him, like, I see you. Yeah. And but I you call you. you can get away with it because he says it with a twinkle in his eye. Right. Well, it's and so he calls him up. He calls him up, not like in, a, like I said, the wise man in the wood kind of way, but in the, like, this is who we are as a culture. This is what's required of you, Maddie. Get up and shovel some hay or whatever they're doing. And he receives that because he's, con Burley's constantly telling them who they are, reminding he, them who he, they are. And there's the, pretty much the awareness that he doesn't want to be doing it either. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, so speaking of yeah. this tone and this twinkle in the eye tone, I'm, I'm remembering something which I think might help people who are struggling because they feel like, Wendell Berry is shaking a rebuking finger at them. And that is um, at the Louisville Searcy Conference when Wendell Berry came and read to us a story out loud. Uh, and so it's the first time I got his voice in my head for these characters, right? And I'm, I'm sure you had the same experience. And he read it. And mm -hmm. um, I think it was Cindy Rollins, although I seem to be on a roll of misquoting her. So Cindy, I apologize. <laughs> if it wasn't you, we're just going to pretend it was you. But whoever was next to me turned to me and said, now, when he was finished, now I know how to read his books. You have to read all of it with a twinkle in the eye. Huh. And that is how he read it. Yeah, he's, he's well, in person, Wendell Berry is extremely 
funny and mischievous. And so not that he can't get a fire under him under certain agricultural issues, but the stories are with the twinkle in the eye. Yeah. There's a lot of love here. And so maybe we need to think of Wendell Berry as burly. Like he might be telling us, hey, idiot. But it's like with love and humor and a wink and a nudge, nudge. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's a there's an essay waiting to be written. And <laughs> the essay is probably titled um, like ways of dissent. You know, like there are ways <laughs> that you can disagree with a person or a way that you can prod a person oh. that is not like full on. I'm going to step up to you with my shoulders square and my steely gaze and tell you what's wrong. <laughs> Because that always results, I mean, always, sometimes it needs to result, but it always results in just like the other person feeling this kind of like rebuke and this shame and they lock up and the change that's hoped for from the first party is never actually produced. And what mm. Burley does is, I mean, it's, it's, it's playful, there's a wink in the eye, but he also he kind of gets what he wants. Like the correction is made, the work is done. And that is a, that's a special talent. And it's something that teachers need to be really good at because you're constantly mm. having students that don't want to do the work or they mm. don't want to participate or they want to complain. And once you lose the student, it's really hard to get the student back. But if you can, if you can still get the student to do the work and to have a passion for the subject, while also preserving the re that the relationship is intact. And I think the way that you show that the relationship can remain intact while still also giving the correction is Burley's a type. I mean, he's, mm. a, he's a great model for that. Mm. Huh. That it's is my total thing. parenting style, by the way, which I think will, will shock no one. I am not a draw the line in the, fan, uh, in the sand, fight you parent. I am a, we laugh at our foibles. And then my child is kind of like, okay, yeah. <laughs> But it's, it's a lot of laughter. I mean, there really is something to that. I was going to say that I think one of the reasons that uh, <clears throat> that Burley can forget correction across to, for example, Maddie, um, is because because it's a different relationship. Like Nathan had a much harder time. Mm, you, you yes. See that, right? Like as he in that moment in that scene, Hannah points out that Nathan sort of like gets this look in his face, and he has to avoid saying what he really wants to say. Yeah. You know, that relationship yeah. is more complicated. The, mm -hmm. the complications of a father and a son relationship are not there mm -hmm. for Burley. So Burley can, can be a voice, you know, sort of a sort of different voice. Um, but, the, but sometimes those non-authoritarian authoritarian voices within a, are necessary within a membership to keep um, mm -hmm. peace and harmony. Um, you oh, need the right. authority, but you also need that, that balance to kind of maintain the harmony that is necessary for the sort of ongoing health of the membership. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He makes Early that phase. point a few other times too, about that's the, the role of grandparents, right? They can, yeah, yeah. they can speak to a child because it's you're one removed. Mm -hmm. Is that the, is that the part David where, um, Hannah says that she can hear Nathan's silence in the loft, even if she can't see it, she can hear yeah. his silence. Is that yeah, the yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, that, that's a great line. Yeah, it is. Those, mm -hmm. are, those are where the uh, Barry the Poet comes out really, uh -huh. really mm -hmm. nicely. Uh -huh. the way those sort of, um, those, those images that they have, they have like, 
Uh, someone, someone, I can't remember who it was. I think it was in college or something. We had this discussion and someone called those like, n- like images that create like negative cognitive space. <laughs> it's like throws you into this like negative space in your brain where, you know, you actually know what it means, but when you actually, when you try to think about it and work out the, the actual physical way that that metaphor would work out in the physical world, it throws your brain into like chaos, <laughs> but that's yeah. why it works. Um, and Barry's really good at those. And you know, that again, that's kind of the work of a poet. Oh, I think we have all heard our parents' angry silence. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And how you, I think I think being one of the challenges of being a parent, I'm kind of learning is like how you express angry silence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, okay, we we've gone for a long time. Let's have some final thoughts here. Um, you each have like 0.4 seconds to get something out. Angelina, you go first. <laughs> who are struggling with the book because they think it's so sad will will work to see the redemptive elements this is the story of gratitude and and for me personally this is the greatest lesson of my life is learning to be grateful even in the midst of terrible trials it, it, it it's, it's completely transformative and so i think that this is a redemptive story and a happy story because she is making the choice to be grateful mm, right yeah, one thing I think we should look for in the, when we talk next week is why is Hannah like why is Hannah able to be grateful? Like, how, what mm-hmm. perspectives does she does she maintain within herself that allow that gratefulness to to overcome the other things that could have be boiling up? Uh, Tim, mm-hmm. you go next. <clears throat> it still makes me sad. <laughs> I'm not saying I didn't cry. <laughs> I mean, I I totally trust Angela. I mean, like. You know, I see glimmers of the redemption already in the book, but it still makes me sad. It's a sad book. <laughs> uh, Heidi? Uh, sure. Yeah. Quick final thought is I've been paying attention. There's been a lot of talk on the Facebook page about Hannah's voice. Um, is And I, I, I didn't see that as a negative thing. The fact that she talks so much less than she is internally processing to me was not... Mm evidence that she doesn't have an, a, a voice out loud, but more just a reminder to pay attention to people and know that those who don't say as much still have just this very rich inner life. And, and that's what I really love about this book. I don't see it as a detriment. Hmm. I've loved that. I've been paying attention to that, this rich inner life in this woman who really doesn't seem to talk that much. Mm-hmm. I think that sure. could be said true about Nathan too. I mean, you think yeah, about the he speaks, it's always very wise, on point. He has completely perceived everything that's going on. And obviously that means he's thinking about it. Hmm. Right. Well, for next week, we will read the rest of the book and then we'll discuss it. And then the following week, we will answer your questions. Um, my final thought is just this. I want to share a poem by Wendell Berry. It's like eight lines mm-hmm. long. It's Ooh, a poem yes. that um, was one of the wedding favors that we gave away was Aww. had this poem on it at our, I at want our to wedding. get married just so I can have that wedding favor. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, we might, we may have some of these bookmarks around somewhere. So there's a bookmark that had this on it. Um, and I think it ties to some of the things we're talking about. This is from, this is, can be found in his collection called given. And it's from his Sabbaths from Sabbath poems from 1998. It goes like this, whatever happens, those who have learned to love one another have made their way to the lasting world and will not leave whatever happens. Mm. So I think mm. that ties nicely. Yeah. <laughs> um, Did people cry at your wedding? Well, I hope so. <laughs> what kind of wedding is it if someone's not crying? <laughs> That's a 
good answer. I feel like that would not be Bethany's answer. Why would they cry? I don't want them to cry. <laughs> You're like, they better cry. Seriously. There's got to be like at least three kinds of people at weddings. People who are crying too much. People who are like laughing too much. And then people who imbibe too much. Um, yeah. I do her drinking too much. can be in the same person. I would just this like is, to point out. This is an excellent point. This is an excellent point. All right. Well, thank you to all three of you. Uh, thanks to everyone who's been listening. Um, the conversation on the Facebook group has been great. Thank you for those of you who are uh, uh, contributing to the Patreon and helping support the show. Mm-hmm. We really appreciate that. Uh, for Heidi White, for Angelina Sanford, and for Tim McIntosh, I am David Kern. Thanks for reading and enjoy the rest of Hannah Colton. And we'll talk to you next week. Thank you.